0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today's theme is the hidden city. Cities are, by their nature, secretive, deceitful, hidden. And books often allow us to peek into their otherwise inaccessible keyholes. Our interviewee today, the writer and reporter Ramita Navai, has written one of these books. Called The City of Lies, it tells the fascinating and often secret stories of eight people living in Tehran today under a repressive regime. Octavia and I are going to be interviewing Ramita, discussing the theme, and, as always, giving book recommendations. So stay tuned. Uh, But before we start the interview, could you introduce Ramita, Octavia?
1: Of course. Uh, Ramita Navai is a British-Iranian journalist and writer. For Channel 4's foreign affairs series, Unreported World, she has reported from over 20 different countries, winning the Emmy for her undercover report from Syria. While working as Tehran correspondent for The Times, she began interviewing ordinary people about their lives and she continued to collect these stories long after most foreign media had been banned from Iran. City of Lies is her first book and it won the Jerwood Award for Nonfiction and the Debut Political Books of the Year Award as well.
0: So Ramita, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. You have a great opening line in City of Lies. Uh, which is, let's get one thing straight. In order to live in Tehran, you have to lie. Morals don't come into it. Lying in Tehran is about survival. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: God, you know, I'm, I'm not a very good liar, and I realized that I was going to I was gonna have to be very natural at it very quickly if I was to lead the life that I wanted to lead there, which meant partying, drinking alcohol, doing all the things you're not meant to be doing and of course these things are slightly different in Iran because the stakes are much higher you know these things are illegal and you can get into a lot of trouble so you have to make sure that when you deny that you're doing these things you sound pretty damn convincing and also talking to my Iranian friends it became really clear that it's kind of th- th- this is seeped into everyday life there so people decided to lie about things they don't even have to lie about because it's become second nature now to subvert mm-hmm. to to tiptoe around the truth to never reveal too much to never expose yourself
1: yeah it's 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 fascinating reading the book i learned so much about a country and a city that i know not that much about actually um and i know that you were born in tehran but you spent a lot of your childhood in london um and so I was wondering what drew you to go back to Tehran apart from the job for the Times, obviously, but were there other reasons that you
2: returned? Do you know what? I, when I went to Iran, I, I, I wasn't working as a journalist, actually. Um, and I... So I did go there to try and cut my teeth in journalism, to try and make a mark. But really, I went there to connect, reconnect with my roots. And, you know, as an immigrant abroad, I had the same boring identity issues... Identity crisis that I think a lot of um, ethnic minorities and immigrants abroad have, and it, yeah, it was it was really part of my own journey. God, I hate that word journey, but it was <laughs> <laughs> it's part of my own journey to, <laughs> to yeah to, to really try and understand where I came from, and and I, I I still have this, but I had this, especially as a teenager, I had this real pull towards the motherland, which is strange because I'm not. A nationalistic person you know I think jingoism is pretty revolting but I still it's hard to explain it's this real connection to to, to that land and that's what I wanted to go and try and connect with
0: and we were just talking about lying do you think that that culture made it harder to connect with the land or was it just part and parcel of the way that you had to live in in Tehran
2: well on some levels, the, the connection was extraordinary. You know, from the minute I first landed in Tehran after over you know 25 years absence, I immediately felt connected because everybody looked like me or my brother or my mum, or my dad or my aunts or my uncles. It was the weirdest thing. It was like being at a massive family gathering. So immediately I felt physically connected to these people. It was as though we were related, a feeling that I'd never had in England, but it also became very quickly clear that I'm I'm not your typical Iranian. And I realized, you know, I I, I realized that I'm not Iranian, I'm not English, but I'm a Londoner. I'm I'm an absolute total Londoner. Although over time, I did feel like a Tehrani as well, and that's definitely part of me now. I think I'm part Londoner, part Tehrani. And did you find you
1: could bring your londoner self and your tirani self
2: together that they both metropolises speak to each other yeah totally it's you know it's th- they're both big sophisticated urban sprawls throbbing with an underlife and i'm always interested in in the underlife you know in the in the dark bits and they have both got that so
0: you started conceiving of this book when you had your press card revoked for some time and you were teaching poor immigrant children. And that it, you explain in the book that that is the first time you were really exposed to a kind of underlife. Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so, so working as a journalist in Iran, you know, all journalists are monitored there. And you know the red lines. You have to work within the red lines. So it's kind of obvious stuff. You can't write anything against the supreme leader. You've got to be careful with human rights cases. Um, can't write anything that's kind of anti-Islam. Um, and as a journalist, of course, you're always pushing the boundaries. And soon enough, I, I managed to piss the re- regime off. They don't usually tell you what you've done to piss them off. But this time, there was a guy in the Ministry of Islam- Islamic um, Culture and Guidance um, who oversaw a journalist working for foreign media, and he he told me what I'd done, Um, which was two things. I'd covered a human rights case that they didn't want covered. It was an interesting case, actually. It was um, a member of the regime, so an original revolutionary who turned against the regime had started talking out against the supreme leader. He'd been imprisoned, and he was now on hunger strike. I covered that case, and I also wrote about this film called The Lizard, it's um, now a cult film. Originally, it was passed by the Iranian censors. And I went to watch it at the cinema, and there's a great scene in it where the film is about a, a guy, a convict, who dresses up as a mullah and escapes from prison. Now, any Tehrani will tell you that mullahs are not cab drivers' favorite passengers, right? And there's a scene where this convict dressed as a mullah is standing by the tri- side of the road trying to hail a cab. Cab drivers hate mullahs. No cab driver will stop for him. And the audience just erupted. They just were ecstatic and started cheering and applauding. So I wrote about that in an article. I actually started my article with the words, have you heard the one about the mullah and the duck? Iranians love a good mullah joke as well. (laughs) And that didn't go down. Can you just explain exactly what a mullah is um, for anyone who doesn't know? Sure. Um, A a mullah is um, a member of the clergy, so Islamic clergy, And, um, yeah, that didn't go down too well with the regime (laughs) either. So because of that, they said, wrap on the knuckles, you can't work. We're going to revoke your press card. And I wanted to do something useful. And as you said, I, I, um, volunteered to teach English at a center for street kids. So this was for kids of Afghans, for kids of prostitutes and for kids of gypsies. Now, all three groups had no right to education in Iran, um, illegal Afghan immigrants. Um, and it was in South Tehran, a quick geography of Tehran. North, you know, they were in really crude, simplistic terms, North, posh, she-she, more westernized. South, more religious, working class, traditional. And at the same time as teaching in this, kid, uh, teaching this school in South Tehran, I made friends with a prostitute at a methadone clinic in South Tehran. She was HIV positive and she was a heroin addict. And these two different experiences opened up a whole new world. And I would go back to my friends in North Tehran, born and bred Tehranis, and tell them about the stories that I was hearing in South Tehran. And they couldn't believe it. Their jaws, the mouths were were wide open. And I realized that these are stories that the regime didn't only want outsiders not to hear, but didn't want Iranians to hear. And the stories were extraordinary. And I realized then that this was the real Tehran. This was the beating heart of Tehran, what was happening in South Tehran. And I wanted to get these extraordinary stories out.
1: And bearing in mind all of that, and
2: as you describe, you know, potentially the
1: caution that you have to have when telling stories, mm. how did you choose your eight subjects? The, the way you arranged the book is in eight different stories of eight different people. Um, and what kind of composite portrait were you kind of trying to create when
2: you did that? I wanted a real cross section of society so I didn't want to leave North Tehran out you know I, I, w- I wanted your a rich north tehrani socialite I wanted an ordinary Iranian student you know I really wanted to to represent the Tehran that I saw which is so multi-layered and so complex society there um, some of the characters that I did want, so I definitely knew that I wanted some kind of rough and ready south downtown crim. I just couldn't get some of them. So I, 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 wanted, I wanted a gun runner originally. I tried really hard. I had Iranian journalists helping me. And it, it, that was just too dangerous in the end. People were too scared. Um, I met it, I, So in the end, I profiled a crystal meth dealer who used to gun run and who still knew gun runners, but it wasn't their main business. So I kind of got to it that way. So, uh, you know, sometimes you have a notion of who you want, and it, you know, it just wouldn't happen or couldn't happen. And sometimes, you know, stories would just fall into your lap. So what I found in Iran is it's interesting, and it's what I find in a a, a lot of um, repressive countries that, that I report from. Or countries where it's really dangerous for journalists to operate, like Mexico. So you go there as an outsider, as a journalist, and local journalists will come and give you the stories that they really want out, that they can't report because of the repercussions, because, of course, they have to live there and stay there. So it was the same in Iran. A lot of journalists came to me begging me to, to, to write certain stories, and I couldn't fit them all in. And some of the stories they gave me were just astounding, were incredible, of, of stuff that was happening there.
0: Do you have an example of one of the stories that they brought to you that you ended up using?
2: Yeah, so one so one of the stories was of of, of a well-known mullah who had been caught actually by the police and found guilty of, of raping children. But he had not been brought to justice because he was a well-known mullah. And the, the, the journalist that told me this had followed his case for many years. And she just started crying in frustration when she was telling, when she was giving me the details of this case. I, cu- you know, I, I couldn't write all the details of the case of who he was and, you know, but but I put the story in there. I promised her I would and I did. And it's in there.
1: Mm. Yes, I can imagine um her fear around that did you feel fear when you were writing when you chose to put those stories together did you take on any of that fear about for your own well-being and for you know after the book was published how it would affect you
2: well do you know having said that I don't think there's anything very controversial in my book I didn't set out to be controversial um and actually Tehran is is opening up on that level you know it's such a contradictory place. Um, and it's always almost a cliche now to say Tehranism, you know, a bundle of contradictions. <laughs> <But> <laughs> everybody says that, but it's true, it really is. Um, so, you know, porn has been discussed in parliament. Prostitution has been discussed in parliament. You know, there are, there are um, adverts around town about drug addictions. Iran has got one of the highest rates of drug addiction in the world and recently crystal meth has just overtaken heroin to become the second drug of choice after opium you know so this is kind of all discussed but you know it's it, it's the way you discuss it how you discuss it and there are no kind of there were also no kind of set rules someone might get into trouble and someone else may not get into trouble so was was i was i worried no i wasn't worried M- i didn't want to get anybody else in trouble That's the main thing. You know, and I was talking to people who were on the wrong side of the law, who were dissidents, who were wanted by the regime. But, you know, I don't think I was writing anything that was anti-regime. And I very much approached this in a non-political way. And, of course, there's an argument that it's Iran. Everything is political. Drinking a cup of water becomes political. And I, I get that. I understand that. However, for me, it was really important that this was just this was ordinary people's stories, and you know what? Some people are pro regime, and I wanted to. Ha- it was really important that I represented them in the book as well because that cannot be forgotten. It's interesting that you
0: say that it's not political, and I I see what you mean. But for me, it's sort of impossible not to come away from the book feeling as though there is something wrong with oppressive regimes and oppressive regimes especially that um, limit the freedoms of women, um, of, of other minorities who don't for some reason or another adhere to the state. Um, do you feel that way yourself and, and
2: was there part of you that actually wanted to show that? I, you're right, somewhere like Iran, everything becomes politicized. That's undeniable. And it's really hard, you know, it's a real struggle to remain apolitical in a country like Iran. And you can absolutely see how repression, oppression leads to, you know, fundamentally sexual frustration that bubbles over into society. And you see this in young men. And this might sound reductive and it might sound really simplistic but really at its core on a societal level when you see the breakdown of society i think you can trace it back to sexual frustration so did i did did, did i have a point to make yes i had to pull myself back did i jump at the opportunity when i did talk to a young bassi's militia who told me how it felt being a muslim when i spoke to you know a young um, Religious housewife who told me how she felt when she would deny herself, uh, d- when she would stop herself from masturbating because she thought it was a sin. You know, did I f- did I think, great, this is an opportunity to really explore this? But I didn't want to explore it in my own words. For me, that was really important. They were the vehicles; they needed to t- t- to get to tell this story, uh, not me. So I. I-, I- I did, you know, I, was, I, was, I had very intimate conversations with people. And of course, you know, there's no such thing as objective uh, storytelling and journalism, I think. Especially when you feel for a place and your heart's in a place. You know, it's, it's impossible. I wanted to
1: talk about the sex in the book, actually, because it's a very present, beating part of the of the text. Um, and it's, I thought it was, it was very refreshing the way that you approached it. Because, like you say, you allow your characters to speak in their own voices. And and you're not a judgmental narrator, well, you know, as the writer. Um, And you talk about sex as being an act of rebellion, really, in Tehran. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. It's
2: really interesting talking to young people about sex in Tehran. So, you know, most Iranians, even the she-she educated, westernized, northern Tehranis, Still, they want the women to be virgins. There's still that pressure. But the younger generation are really fighting back. And they're really exploring sexually. And I wouldn't go far as to say there's a sexual revolution happening, but there's definitely a sexual awakening happening. And when you talk to young people, um, this for them is their own act of dissent. So. After the 2009 protests, so there were mass protests in the streets in 2009, which really, you know, which many say was, you know, tipped the Arab Spring, which kind of inspired the Arab Spring. When that happened, the Iranian government really cracked down on its people, brutally. And any green movement, reform movement, you know, student dissent groups, they were really crushed. And now when you talk to people, they, you know, in political terms, they talk, young people to me talked about the sexual awakening because they have power over their bodies and the state can't take that away from them. They have ultimate control over their bodies and they're not allowed to have sex. So having sex is the ultimate one-fingered salute. Mm, to yeah, freedom
1: that makes a lot of sense and while we're talking about bodies the other thing that really stuck out for me was um, the number of characters we meet who've had plastic surgery especially on their noses and it, it, is that about the influence of western culture or
2: is it um, more kind of
1: internal than that
2: oh god this is this is endlessly debated maybe it's partly because a lot of Iranians have big noses mm-hmm. um, <laughs> You know, when you meet an Iranian woman who hasn't had a nose job there, for me it's an it's an absolute joy and a revelation because it says so much about this person sitting opposite you. What a strong individual they must be. And I really mean that because women under so much pressure to look a certain way in Iran. And, you know, let's look at it from, again, a societal point of view, cultural point of view. You have to live at home with your mum and dad until you get married. So there's a lot of competition to get married. You want to get out of your mom and dad's house as soon as possible, right? All young people around the world are the same. So you c- the only way you can do that is getting married. Things are changing, by the way, and, and women are starting to live together and on their own, which is amazing. It's a very, very, very small percentage of Iranians, so. So there's a lot of competition for guys. Um, and also, as one Iranian said to me, she said, listen, we can just show this much of our faces. And she uh, traced her face of course, because she's wearing a hijab. By law, you have to wear a hijab. She said, "So this is everything to us. This is how we sell ourselves." And they have, you know, they have a certain vision of beauty that I think is common in oh God—not just Middle Eastern countries, but you know, I think you say it's fine. The same thing in Venezuela, in Colombia. You know, they're, they're, we're, we're vain people. <laughs> look at me in my high heels you know I've been teetering around in these practically since I could walk I'm sure my mom gave birth to me wearing a pair of killer heels like this <laughs> It's such a wonderful contradiction
0: that, though, that you've you've covered up as much space on your body as you can. And a lot of them were the, these chadors. Is that how to pronounce it? And yeah.
2: OK, so this would really get me right. So I could understand that you, you covered up because you have to cover up by law, but you're wearing, your, you know, your, your sexy outfit underneath and you're like you've belted your overcoat as tight as it can be. What I don't get are the ch- the women who choose to wear the chador. It's not the ones who have been made to wear it by their husbands and by their fathers. So the chador is a kind of the black shroud-like material that covers your whole body, um, and then they're wearing like Perspex porn heels, and they've got like collagen engorged lips, and they've like Botox their foreheads. And I've never really got my head around that, yeah. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. I guess it's that,
1: you know, to transgress a boundary, the boundary has to be firmly in place. So you have your shadow as this, you know, outward symbol that you are not transgressing, but the bits that peep out, the lips and the feet. I mean, they're classic fetish territory, aren't they? Stripper heels and collagen lips.
2: Yes, yes. And this is really interesting as well. I think this opens up a whole new... New kind of f- f- new food for thought, new debate, and this is you know Iranians themselves, especially kind of intellectual North Tehranis, can get very sensitive about outsiders fetishizing the hijab and fetishizing the chador. But you're absolutely right because Iranians do this themselves, and w- and I realized this when I was talking to punters, so guys who sleep with prostitutes. And when I was sleeping, talking to prostitutes, you, know, you said sleeping with prostitutes. Then. <laughs> no, definitely not. And and when I was talking to prostitutes themselves, because a lot of the guys like to have sex with prostitutes wearing their headscarves or wearing the chador. So it's it's, yeah, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about some of these characters, because they're, they're all colorful, and they're all completely fascinating in their own way. I was especially intrigued by, um, is it Samaya? Samaya? Samaya, yeah. Um, who I think whose life encapsulates a lot of these contradictions we've just been talking about. She's a religious woman who, um, who goes through a divorce. Um, and I think her story shows how quite ordinary people have to do extraordinary things to even live in the city. Can you talk a bit about her and her story?
2: Exactly. You know, and the, you you're absolutely right because, you know, she's a woman and she she divorces, big deal. But in the Islamic Republic, this is, you know, it's th- it's it's in a, thrown in a completely different light. Um, and it's becomes an extraordinary story, something seemingly very ordinary. What I loved about Samaya is that she She genuinely is very pro-regime. She loves the Supreme Leader. She cries whenever he comes on TV. She's a really nice girl. You know, we couldn't be more different, me and Samaya, sitting there talking to each other. She was intrigued by me, and I was intrigued by her. We come from two absolutely different worlds. And she was very, I really, I, I, I really admired her honesty. She was very open with me. And in fact, you know, I would say she's one of my characters that, that didn't lie, that doesn't lie, that really is herself. She's one of the few people. She has no need to lie, but she abides by all of the rules in the Islamic Republic. Um, and she's the one that I had really frank discussions about masturbation with. Um, and she told me she feels sexually aroused, but she fights it. You know, it's it's she thinks it's an absolute sin. Um and as you say, she went through this transformation, which for me was really interesting. I think it was really interesting for her. I think had I met her before her transformation, I probably wouldn't like her. I wouldn't have liked her. I think it's made her um, a, more, a less judgmental person. Um, so she comes from a neighborhood in Tehran um, where you whisper the word divorce. You know, you used to. Things are changing. Iran has a really high divorce rate. And divorce is, you know, is allowed by the Islamic R- R- Republic. It's it's absolutely fine. But in her world, um, it's you know, you're shamed if you're divorced. But of course, she she's come through at the other end. And since her divorce, many 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 other women in her neighbourhood have, have got divorced. Hmm. And
1: some of the other characters are more underworld figures. Um, did you meet? I mean, especially the men. Actually, there's some quite brutish men in that book. Um, did you ever feel fear approaching them? Did you feel that you as being a woman asking them questions would would have an effect on how they answered?
2: No, not 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 the not the underworld characters. you know they're they're wheelers and dealers, and they're really open and they talk very sexually and they they you know they, they, they love a good dick joke they <laughs> 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 especially if they've got an audience and and they, you know, they, they have and they have these weird um you know we, we, weird notions of having to be honorable in front of women even though they are you know they're real sexist um boars <laughs> um and i mean boar in the animal form by the way um but i i yeah i was i was much more careful uh, uh, around religious men much more careful i tread very gently um and I didn't know how far I could go, how far I could push it. It would take a long time for me to to know my boundaries with them um without offending them so and some some people like some some men, religious men, there was no way I could have started talking uh, about sex because they would have either thought that you know I was a, I had loose morals or maybe I would be I was coming onto them. So yeah, I would definitely judge each person and and realize if, if I could push it, if I could ask certain questions or not. And there's some people that absolute no no, you don't want to go there, otherwise they might get angry. The
0: style of this book is um, is really interesting to me. Sorry, that's a terrible word, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you say when you don't have anything else to say. But <laughs> but what I want to say is you've written this almost like a novel. Um, the 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 stories, you know, they have hooks into them. Um, they're really narrative. They, you, you get inside the mind of the character, and and they come to some resolution. Um, and also, you explain in the back a bit about your sources. Obviously, it's based on I- an immense amount of in-depth research, which we've been talking about now. Um, But also some of the characters are, um, you've taken details from some people you've met, um, you've sort of patched on identities, sometimes to protect the people, Mm -hmm. in other cases to to show a a portrait that seems true, but... Mm -hmm. I'd, I am really interested to know why you chose this style and also if you had any reservations about preserving some sort of journalistic integrity or truth by sort of veering into the realm of f- fiction.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't see it as a work of fiction at all. I see it as a work of absolute nonfiction. For me, the style was really important. As you said, I wanted the reader to hear the voices that I was hearing and when you sit down with uh, with you know w- when you sit down with these characters with these Iranians that I met they're amazing storytellers because they've got amazing stories to tell and i wanted so, so for example a lot of the um, a, 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 lot, a lot of speech dialogue is verbatim bijan the meth dealer crystal meth dealer all the dialogue with him and his mates nearly all of it is absolute verbatim so i was tapping it on my little iphone as they were speaking, and I was just sitting there, listening, observing, listening, observing. Um, And I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to assume his character, his mannerisms, his way of speech, you know, his kind of Iranian Cockney way of talking, Uh, Because that's, you know, I I, I didn't want to be the journalist telling the dry, uh, you know, I'm sitting from the outside looking in stories. No, I wanted you to hear it from his own lips as he tells his story. You know, even the bits that he embellishes or the bits he doesn't embellish, that's his story. When it comes to composite characters, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I either did it because there were holes in people's stories because they said, listen, you can't put this bit in because the authorities will then know who I am. Or, oh, my mum will guess it's me. So then there'd be holes and what we'd do is together, usually together, um, we'd find somebody else to fill in that gap. So they'd say, look, you can't interview my sister, but you can interview a friend of mine who lives in the same area, who comes from the same family, and use her story. So that's how I would weave it together. And as you say, yeah, there are a few moments that I've chosen to weave more than one story together. Um, For example, the prostitute Layla, um, who is alive, she has her own tragic ending. Luckily, not so tragic that it's ended in death. Um, but she did not want me to reveal details of, of her life now. So I used the real story of a woman who was caught making porn films, who was killed. Um, and for me, that was important as well, because it's you know that's the fallout. This can happen to people. You know, it was it, this is what she was running the risk of. So journalistic integrity, um, I, God, for me, everything had to be fact and real. Everything. This isn't the way I would write an article, no. And of course there's been full disclosure. You know, I wanted the reader to know this is how I've done it. But I also want the reader to know everything you are reading has either happened or is happening.
1: And you said at the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, of the interview, that these are stories that you know people in North Tehran maybe haven't heard about people in South Tehran. And I wondered when you were writing the book, were you thinking of a, a, an audience outside of Iran, or inside of Iran? You know, were you thinking of a readership that would be learning about this culture for the first time? Or that was um, seeing its own culture reflected back at it.
2: I I definitely wasn't writing this for. I definitely wasn't writing this for Iranians. Um, I was I was writing it for. For everybody else, you know, the, the Iranians don't need to hear these these stories, um, because they are talking about it now. They, ha- they have they have the Iranians need they they. they have to discover these stories for themselves, I guess, and if they want to discover it from my book, fine. But I definitely wasn't writing it for, for an Iranian audience.
0: Do you, can you go back to Iran after writing this book?
2: I would like to. Um, I don't know whether I can or I can't. There's been no official edict Um, Ramita Navai cannot come back to Iranian soil and will imprison her. I don't think there will be. I think it will be fine. Um, I hope to. I miss it deeply.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming in, Ramita. Uh, The book is called City of Lies and it's out in paperback now. This month's theme is The Hidden City, inspired by, of course, City of Lies. Um, so, in a more general discussion, uh, I think we should start just by saying that the reason why we're having a show about The Hidden City is because cities probably lend themselves much more than other spaces to having secrets and having lies and having deceit and having things hidden from view.
1: Absolutely. Concealed spaces. Because if you think about it, it's A metropolis is always people, it's many different stratas and many different layers, right? And you have access to different parts of it depending on who you are and where you come from and how you relate to the city. Um, And I think there's a sense that in any space where you have this multiplicity of people, bodies, drives, desires, it it becomes like a hotbed for all kinds of different activities. Um, And something that comes very much out of Ramita's descriptions of Tehran but I think that can apply to any city is the kind of there's a hypocrisy inherent in city living that there's a public face and a private face and because you have access to every possible den of iniquity you know because it's festering under your eyes um, it's easy for for people to live one kind of life publicly and another kind of life privately Um, but I also think cities tend to be the nexus of political um structures and uh you know when you bring politics into into play obviously there's a lot of duplicity so I think yeah I think it, it lends itself very well yeah and politics just
0: just because of the mass of people who congregate mm. um there there are always things that will be hidden and um, countercultures that will rise up in places so um you know Ramita's book is very much about not just counterculture but Uh, the underbelly Mm. of a city and and that in some ways like that she's writing about Tehran for a reason and not uh, a village because there there's just more homogenous culture there Mm. Um, and when you have a huge group of people living together that that creates these quite exciting ways in which people can splinter off from each other and do things differently and um, you know hiding doesn't something hidden doesn't always have to be a bad thing
1: not at all and you have the you know oppositions rubbing shoulders so the very rich and the very poor um the religious the non-religious you know the legal and the illegal essentially um in 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 a society that's much more of a melting pot than a rural town or a village which is much more a homogenous group of people um and there's you know it's such a rich uh it's such a rich theme in terms of literature because you know, we're fascinated by the underside of things. Um, yeah. And perhaps a tradition that first really got started with the,
0: the flaneurs of uh, of 19th century Paris. Oh, yeah. We love them. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, 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 it really brought to the forefront this idea of a person living in the modern world and interacting with the city. And the city as being the place where... Everything is to be found. Mm. Also, the alienation of modern life that you can be in a crowd and also completely alone.
1: Absolutely. And the thing with the flaneur um, was that he was a man, crucially at that time, because women did not have access to all these spaces. He was a man, usually of certain wealth and standing, who had access to both the, um, you know, out the kind of daylight time, daytime experience of the city. And then he could go down into the bouge, the little dirty boxes um, of nighttime Paris and be with the prostitutes and be with the ballerinas. And he could see this um, and this counterculture that was happening then. I mean, it was Walter Benjamin who came up uh, with, well, who sort of um, marked out the, the term flaneur as worthy of scholarly research and began um, this, very you know now well-established academic tradition but he brought it out of Baudelaire's poetry um Les Fleurs du Mal the, the flowers of evil which is a, a collection of poems it's all about going down into the underbelly of Paris and um getting your feet dirty and your hands dirty your feet dirty definitely your hands dirty anyway um and showing a completely different side to the city that you know up until that point people had very romantic ideals of um it's, yeah, it's, they're, they're extraordinary poems, actually. But coming out unscathed. Mm, I guess that coming was out a, unscathed,
0: yeah. The inequality Observing. of mm. the Flanner is mm. that they can observe and, and still remain apart.
1: Yeah, and, and not be sullied by the places that they go into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a bit
0: more about how literature has engaged with the hidden city. Um, maybe let's talk about nonfiction first, because that was the subject of our interview today. Um, it's interesting to me. Um, how books can give us such a fascinating glimpse um maybe more so than any other media or method of research i'm not sure that's probably a big claim but um inside the or the the lives of ordinary people and sort of beyond what is projected or um presented as the truth so i think ramita's book is a great example of that and i think that's probably particularly true of um harsh regimes that are inaccessible for whatever reason. Um, I I was thinking of um, Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy, which is about people in North Korea, um, which was totally eye-opening for me and fascinating because their lives are completely hidden from us. Mm. Um, And journalists have the power to to go into these worlds
1: and and to bring something that is hidden back to us and and lay it out before us. I've never read that book, and it, it does sound fascinating. And I suppose it's that that's how you as a um, as a reader, your first your first point of access into especially countries that are governed by repressive regimes is going to be through literature, because you know in those regimes it's not imagery, it's not um, video footage that, that is coming out, is it? It's it's going to be words first, words written down first. You know, uh, everything else will come later if, if a society opens up, right?
0: Yeah, and um, I can't remember who once said this to me, but they said literature is the last form of dense thought, which wow. I always thought, <laughs> which I always come back to um, it, because it says something about w- what kind of information books can convey. And it really is in some ways, the richest source of just uh, giving a full picture of a life. You might argue as a film student.
1: I don't know. No, I, d- I don't argue, actually. I don't. No. <laughs> 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 um, I wanted to talk about, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but Just Kids by Patti Smith, because that's another way into the city. Not, not through the eyes of a journalist this time, but in, in this kind of form of memoir fiction. A memoir comes up a lot when thinking about cities and hidden cities, because it's, it's the most effective way almost to take somebody by the hand and say, "Hey, come on, come in, come on in, let me show you you know um, And I, I would be much more likely to read you know a book by Patty Smith because I admire her as a musician and an artist, and then find out by default, what her experience of New York was than to think, oh, I want to read a book about hidden New York. You know, so kind of this way this way into cities and spaces via personalities, which I think is a, a really a great way to do it actually. And that's again one of the strengths of Ramita's book is that you learn about Tehran through these characters and it makes it a lot more accessible than just kind of dry journalistic prose. Yeah. And and when you think about the
0: hidden, you know it's not just Something that's going on, it's what's happening inside people's heads, so there's a much richer element of the secret when when we can actually enter someone's mind, mm. not just the things that they do and the people they fraternize with very profound can yeah. I? <laughs> <laughs> um let's talk about fiction as well uh the the hidden lives of cities have long had a pull over fiction writers um i think probably because it gives you a chance to give your reader a glimpse into a different world as we've been talking about and it sets up a kind of ready-made conflict between what is presented and what lies beneath um which i believe has been the title of more than one book or film <laughs> um so so what do you think about that
1: yeah i th- i think it's absolutely true and you know if you're if you're thinking about the realist novel as an example um you know, novels that reflect the reality of contemporary society, but take, you know, your traditional bourgeois reader into these spaces that that she, especially, wouldn't normally have access to. Um, I mean, I thought of of uh, Oliver Dickens, Charles Dickens, and Oliver Twist, especially, um, and also Bleak House, you know, two novels that are very much concerned with kind of gritty urban experience, and he, you know, Charles Dickens had a great moral um, drive and he felt an obligation to show people, you know, this other side of things. Um, yeah, just like
0: she was talking about with Catherine Boo, which is obviously nonfiction, but that's, it, you know, it's about poverty and it's about exposing what, what is hidden. And that was in part what Charles Dickens was doing. He was saying, look, look at these people living on the fringes of society who otherwise you would turn your nose at or not even see in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely a a moral tinge to it. I mean, there's also, you could write about gangsters and mobsters. That's another element of this. And I don't think that's a particularly moral pursuit. It's more the fascination of the underworld. It's a fetish. And glorifying crime, essentially.
1: Yeah, which I'm I'm fascinated by that. I am, you know, I love love The Godfather. (laughs) Um, I also thought of The City and the City by China Mieville, which is... um, I don't know, I wouldn't call it science fiction, but it's certainly not a realist novel. Um, and it's very political, actually. You know, We talk about the city as a political space, and I do think that is one of the things that drives this um, this idea of, of access and not access. And China Mieville's book is very much, um, it's sort of investigating this idea that, you know, there can be one space, but two very different experiences of it. So, um, Th- it's a literal exploration of one city as a palimpsest of another. And uh, these two communities who are sharing the same. Good word. Palimpsest. Yeah, it's a great palimpsest, A-level history, uh, A-level English coursework coming back. Um, but yeah, the, these two communities that are actually sharing the same physical space, but they've learned to forget each other and to unsee each other. Um, so it's kind of an allegory of the rich and the poor rubbing alongside or, or any other conflicting communities sharing a space. Um it also made me think of Borges's short story, Tlón, and Orbis Tertius*, which I know I've talked about on here before. Um, but it's also another story that is about the power of ideas and imagination in how we shape communities and how we shape these spaces. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I think what that's a really
0: important point that you're making about the rich and the poor, um, and political spaces. it's because that's that is what cities do that nowhere else in the world does is is put very, very wealthy people next to very, very poor people, and they have completely different experiences of the same exact space. And that conflict is,, um, you know, you can't enough books can't be written about it in a way, whether they're doing something political or not.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think especially as women, you know, you, I'm keenly aware of that as a woman. I'm keenly aware that there are spaces in cities that are, I'm not welcome to go in. Whereas if I were a man, you know, maybe I would be. I think it's the same if you're, a, you know, an ethnic minority or a m- minority of any other kind. Essentially, if you're not a straight white guy, <laughs> um, you're aware that there are spaces where you're not welcome. Um, but then, of course, there are com- books from completely the other end of the spectrum, like Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, which is, you know, this kind of 1980s excessive look at... New York and egomaniacal Wall Street and crime and greed and not so hidden in some ways. Um, but it's interesting to read books like that now, you know, that hard, but books that were written in a time, an economic climate that was very different. Um, and you read them now and they kind of, they dredge up a hidden past almost of, of the city experience and help you sort of, uh, help you find your feet in understanding where we are now and why we're here why we're in this mess essentially (laughs) okay well
0: uh that is a good segue into my favorite hidden city book which is about new york a very different new york than tom Wolfe's. it's a book called i am not myself these days which is a memoir uh you were talking about memoirs earlier and i think uh i think you're right that a memoir is a great, great way to experience a place and experience a a hidden part of a place that we don't necessarily usually have access to. Um, The author's name is Josh Kilmer Purcell. Um, and the memoir deals with the span of his life in the mid-90s when he was living in New York City working as an advertising art director by day and as a drag queen named Aquadesiac or Aqua for short because nobody got the um, pun, which oh, is no, so great. no, that's um, devastating. And her signature thing was um, that she had live goldfish in her
1: bra. <gasps> Stop it. Yeah, it's just so she great. She sounds divine. It's
0: so great. And um, he's also dating a male prostitute who is addicted to crack. So all of these things, um, you know, definitely make him part of some sort of underground counterculture, especially in the mid '90s when things like that weren't as accepted, certainly. Um, and, you know, the, by the uh, many of them are illegal as well. You know, he it, crack is illegal, so crack that is it's very illegal, kids. it's very hidden. <laughs> um, but what's so wonderful about this book is how ordinary, ordinary he makes it all seem. Um it's so funny and sad and it's just like any life. He is, you know, he may be having goldfish in his bra, but he's just a guy trying to <laughs> find love. <laughs> and so the hidden is, you know, one of the one of the things that literature can do is take the hidden or the unknown or the scary and and make it um, relatable. And Mm. I think that is what this book does so well is, you know, he, he is human. Um, even though, you know, I have never been a drag queen, nor have I been a prostitute addicted to crack.
1: Excellent. Done. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Literally
1: had no idea what to say to you then. (laughs) Um, my recommendation is a lot more miserable (laughs) Um, but it is an excellent book it's called Down and Out in Paris and London by the inimitable George Orwell Um, it's not strictly a novel novel either it's more fictionalised memoir Um, written in two parts it was his first full length work published in 1933 and I first came across it when I was living in Paris ten years ago (laughs) Um, as a poor 18 year old uh, running around, not sure what was going on. And I, I bought this book, I think, from Shakespeare and Company, like the big old giant cliche that I am. And um, it was an amazing experience to read it. Uh, it's Orwell's account of living on the breadline in Paris. Um, and we get an insight into the flip side of Parisian high life. He's working in a hotel, which he calls Hotel X, and he's a dishwasher, or plongeur, as they say in French. Um, and he the the Paris section of the book is quite kind of rambunctious and although he's very very poor he's living from hand to mouth he also meets all these cheerful swindlers from all over Europe and they have these kind of interesting run-ins um, it's very tragic comic and then the second part is set in London and he finds himself in limbo waiting for a promised job that isn't materializing um, and so he while waiting tramps his way around the city and he's always on the move or sleeping in shelters or bedsits um and we see the the city's impoverished underbelly and it's actually quite dickensy in that section it's similar experience london does not come across as a great place to be impoverished um whereas paris actually has a kind of the paris section has a sort of romance about it that we're used to seeing and like in opera you know la bohème is all about you know the um dying young women in a garret but there's something romantic about it there is nothing romantic about being homeless anywhere probably but especially not in London according to Orwell um but I do really recommend it it's quite a political text in a way and uh quite angry like a lot of Orwell um and he's almost the flip side to the flaneur he's roaming his roaming is facilitated by his poverty as opposed to his wealth so it's it's an interesting hidden element of flannery um but yeah I recommend it very highly Excellent.
0: is the book recommendation segment of the show. Why don't I start? So my recommendation this month is The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, which I have to admit, I have not read all the way through. um, So it might really veer off course and be terrible, but I I don't think so, judging by what I know about Joan Didion. But I'm really enjoying it, um, if you can say enjoying about a book that is essentially about horrible grief and loss and um, starting to go crazy after suffering. Um, So it's a very slim book about the year after Didion's husband died of a heart attack um, while their only child was in a coma in the hospital. And Didion is known for her very cool and collected um, style of writing while still being deeply emotional. And it almost feels, I think, as though this is the book that she was meant to write that the style perfectly matches the subject um, because the only way you can talk about it is in a sort of unflinching, cool, um, dis- almost dispassionate way. Um, and I've read so many memoirs about grief that veer into the melodramatic or uh, the sort of overly emotional, and that really turns me off. And finally, this seems to be something that can actually express what it is like to suffer in that way. This is a really morose <laughs> recommendation, but it's 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 a hopeful book as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I yeah, if the word unflinching was ever appropriate, it's it's here. So if you are interested, and I don't think you need to have lost anyone or. Um, want to n- particularly know about this but if if you just want to read a really well-written book um then then this is probably for you
1: i do i, I do want to read that i <laughs> <laughs> you described it that way um yeah it sounds it sounds i was going to say wonderful which is the wrong adjective but it sounds very interesting <laughs> i think you
2: have um, to be happy do you have to be happy to read it
0: maybe although i was looking on amazon yesterday and um a lot of people said that they read it after suffering from loss themselves, which I thought was really
2: extraordinary. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that to myself.
1: No, maybe a cathartic way of kind of tapping into those feelings, but sounds full on. Sunshine thinking. <laughs> mine um, mine is a classic Octavia recommendation. Um, it's called Is It My Body? And it's by Kim Gordon, who was one of the founding members of Sonic Youth. Um, and it's not a novel, but... Um, it's a book of poems and essays, and it's a brilliant mashup of art, music, and gender politics, which are some of my favourite things, <laughs> as you may know, um, and and punk aesthetic really. Um, Kim Gordon actually started out as an artist. She's most well known for Sonic Youth, but she was a visual artist first. And in the late eight, late eighties and early nineties, she did lots of writing around. Um, the concept of art, the artist, um, the crossover between art and music. And it, it's basically a collection of, of her thoughts from then. But the thing that's interesting is it seems so relevant still now. Um, and it reads, it's a very fresh, energetic, and it's a very sm- small little book. Um, it's kind of one for dipping in and out of, you know, you don't read those kind of things cover to cover. Um, and there's also some, some images of the work that she discusses. So she's talking about Mike Kelly, the installation artist, and Raymond Pettibon, and stuff like that. Um, and there's a few short poems at the beginning that are excellent and really, I wouldn't have necessarily expected to come from, from Kim Gordon. Um, they have it at the ICA bookshop. It's really beautifully printed by Sternberg Press. Um, And I would recommend it if you're interested in those things. If you're not interested in those things, you will hate it. And you should leave it alone.
0: (laughs) So was this better or worse than Viv Albertine, who I think you
1: recommended last month? I definitely recommended Viv Albertine recently. It is very different. Viv Viv Albertine's was a memoir. um, And it was about her personal experience. And it was very funny and witty. And it was narrative-based. This is much more kind of... Dry, I guess. Uh, I can't choose, don't make me choose. They're both heroes of mine. Different, not better, different.
2: Fair. (laughs) Thanks, Um, and Ramita, what about you? So this came out um, a few years ago, uh, but I really wanted to recommend a non-fiction book, and in fact, it's non-fiction narrative. Um, which is what I've done, but my God, has she done it beautifully? Behind the Beautiful Forever's by Catherine Boo, ah. and I just—is that ah uh, no, take, no. takes your breath away, right? Uh, I breathtaking. D- yes, breath-taking. I mean breathtaking. And you read it, and you know what she's done is extraordinary because she's gone to this slum in Mumbai, but she's painted this vivid portrait, this vivid picture of real people that you don't sit around thinking, oh, these poor slum dwellers constant victims. No, she's got stuck right in there and she's telling their stories through their own eyes. It's so extraordinary, actually, that when you get to the end, you think, is this really true? Did this happen? And then you realize that she's a bloody amazing journalist and she forensically goes through her research and the facts that she collected and the work that she did over years in this slum. And really what this book is for me is a study on poverty. It's not just some extraordinary stories from one slum in in mumbai it tells you so much more of how a whole system can be corrupt to the core and can fail a whole group of people and to read it and not be moved you can't be human i agree with every word you just said and and i have
0: to say ramita that your book made me think first and foremost of of um behind
2: the beautiful forever that well that's the hugest compliment ever because she's 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 my goddess, Catherine and Boo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and actually, um, it ties really well into our theme, which is the hidden city. Uh, you know that there's yeah. this idea that they're literally behind this um, poster that says uh, "beautiful forever," uh, and then there's a slum that is right next to Mumbai airport. And yes, and yet on all sides has been rejected by yeah. society and is and goes unnoticed.
2: Exactly, stinking and putrid, but hidden hidden from view, and this is, yeah, This and th- you know, it's always in these places. Scratch the dark places, and that's where you'll get the real stories, and that's where you get a real peek at real life. I'm gonna have to borrow that one, please. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm okay. not lending you mine. <laughs> <laughs> Sleep with it under my pillow.
0: <laughs> Well, I think we'll all be uh, recommending and loaning each other books in the near future. That is it for today. Thank you to Ramita Navai, whose book City of Lies is now out in paperback. We'll be back in a month. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.